me here in Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 6, if you're not there already. As you're turning there, I do want to say thank you to our piano players who led us through that music uh, so powerfully. Uh, they did an excellent job. Um, uh, I also need to say thank you to them um, because of the change with the moving communion to this morning. For some reason, and probably because I'm not musical, I never think to tell our piano players. And so they showed up this morning, they were like, wait, we have to play piano for communion. <laughs> and yet the Lord has given us those who are very gifted, and because they're gifted, they're able to be flexible, uh, even despite my uh, shortcomings and overlookings. <laughs> so uh, rejoice in what we have. And let's open with a word of prayer before we turn our attention to Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 6. Heavenly Father, this morning we are left to marvel at the truth of the gospel. Even as we have just confessed and sung the awesome thought that it was for me. Heavenly Father, we know our hearts. We know how utterly wicked that we are. We know how undeserving we are. And yet we rejoice this morning not in our own merit. We rejoice in the cross of Christ. We rejoice in the everlasting hope of our high priest who is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to plead for us. Heavenly Father, our hope is sure this morning because our high priest, because Jesus Christ lives. We pray that even as we turn our attention to this passage this morning, Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would work through your word, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would perfect us even as you promised that your word does. It is profitable. We pray that we would be built up in the faith this morning. That we would be challenged. That we would be convicted of the sins that so easily beset us. And that we would turn and we would cling to Jesus Christ alone. Ultimately, Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that your name would be lifted high. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 6. I, I honestly started the week with the plan of going throughout the whole chapter of Hebrews 8. And then the more I started uh, working, I had two points, these first six verses and the last seven verses. And the more I started working, the more I realized that my first point was getting really, really long. And uh, it was kind of a message in itself. And so we split it up here at Hebrews 8, Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 6. You've probably been around someone who's always trying to one-up you. I imagine that we all know someone like that. In fact, there's, there's one in every family. Some of you might be married to that person. And if you're thinking and you can't think of one in your family... It's because it's probably you. 
I had a good friend who was that way. No matter what story I would tell, he had to tell a better story. If you're standing around in a group and and I tell a funny joke and everyone's laughing, he would have to tell a funnier joke. If I had a unique experience, he had an even more unique experience. The moment that the conversation shifted away from him and from his interests, he had to immediately bring it back to himself. At first, their stories might be interesting and might be helpful to a conversation. In fact, that's the way a conversation works, is it not? We all take turns telling stories, adding our own experiences and our perspective to the conversation. And yet, in most conversations, it's not meant to be focused on just one person. One person's not meant to stand out. So eventually, it really becomes annoying. Because no one is that great. No one's that great. Okay, may, maybe you have tried more exotic food than I have. Or maybe you've, you've been to more countries than I have. Maybe, maybe you've read more or better books than I have. Maybe you had a better college experience. Maybe you have a better job. Maybe you've climbed more mountains or hiked more trails or skied more runs or scored more goals. Maybe you are funnier. Maybe you're better looking. Maybe you are smarter. But no one is all of those things. It's okay to allow someone else to tell their story without having to beat them. Conversation is not a competition. Now, when you really back up and think about it, Hebrews can almost feel like that, though, can it not? I mean, the author of Hebrews is building a strong case for the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's like that guy where, where everything that his opponent says, he says, yes, but, but Jesus is better. But Jesus. But Jesus. Everything his, opportun- his opponents bring up, he has an answer for. He starts with the, the claim that Jesus is better than the prophets of old, and, and that in itself is a bold statement. But he doesn't stop there. You see, not only is Jesus better than the great prophets of old, but he is better than the angels. He has a better name than them. And his word is more sure than their word, than their word and he brings a great salvation. This Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. He offers a better rest than Joshua. A better hope than Abraham. And he is a better high priest than Aaron or Levi. And he's not done yet. We're just in chapter 8 of 13 chapters of Hebrews. And at this point, his his argument, his point is almost getting ridiculous. Like that person where you just want to say, no one is that great. And the author of Hebrews responds, Jesus is. Jesus is that great. And so having shown in Hebrews 7 the superiority of Jesus' priesthood based on God's promises and Jesus' victory over death, now the author of Hebrews turns his attention from the superior call of Jesus and his superior identity as the Son of God to the superior work of Jesus Christ. What is it that he does? And so this morning we'll see the accomplishments of our great high priest. We'll see the location of our great high priest. And we'll see the promises of our great high priest. 
And ultimately, what we will see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And not only is he the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made in the past, but he is the guarantor of even better promises. We'll rejoice in that truth this morning. The first thing you see is the accomplishment of our great high priest here in just verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is the main point of the things that we are saying. Before the author of Hebrews moves forward with his argument, he pauses here to grab the attention of his audience. To, to shake them and to wake them up and, and to make sure they understand this is important. If you're drifting off, if you're not paying close attention, if you missed everything else that I've said, listen now, because this is the sum of all of it. This is the climax of everything that I have been saying up until this point. This is the main point of the things that we are saying. This is it. Everything the author of Hebrews has said up to this point from Hebrews 1 and Jesus' superiority over the prophets and over the angels to even chapter 5 and 6 as he gets on the case of his readers for not having grown as they should have in the Lord. Everything is building and supporting this point. This is why it matters that Jesus is better. This is what it means for you. This is the main point of everything that we are saying. What is it? What is this main point? What is it that he wants us to see? That we have such a high priest. That we have such a high priest. He wants you to understand that Jesus meets your needs. The reality is that if something, normally, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And I'm sure that this thought is probably running through the minds of some of those reading this letter from the author of Hebrews. Surely Jesus can't do all of this. Maybe the author of Hebrews is just describing the ideal high priest, but there's, there's no way that there's really a high priest who will be a priest forever. Even if he's really called by God himself, no one can beat death. But we have such a high priest. He did beat death. He has been called by the Father. He exists. This high priest explained in Hebrews 7, who is able to save to the uttermost, called by God, who has conquered death. He exists and he is Jesus Christ. That word such, again, that is the summation of everything that the, the, the author of Hebrews has said up until this point. We have such a high priest. We have all these needs that need to be met, and we can't meet them ourselves, but we have such a high priest who can meet them, every single one of them. A high priest who has defeated death and who is therefore able to save to the uttermost. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, in Christ because the high priest of Hebrews 7 exists and it is Jesus Christ. 
He meets our needs. He is such a high priest. But secondly, note that he has accomplished his purpose. This is the point that I want you to get. This is the main point of everything that we are saying. This point is this, that we have such a high priest. Such a high priest who what? Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Not only does this high priest exist, but his work is finished. These three words from the cross, it is finished, echo through eternity. It is the saving work of Jesus Christ that is done. He has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. See, if you were to go in the Old Testament, if you were to study the tabernacle and the, the furniture that was there, later in the temple even, you would, you'd probably note that there are no chairs for the priests in, for, in which the priests can sit. There are no beds in which they can take breaks and lay down. And that is purposeful. Because the work of a priest was never done. The work of a priest is tiresome. I mean, just put yourself in the place of a priest on a, a high holy day. As there are throngs of people calling out to them, bringing them their sacrifice. And over and over and over, the priest has to walk back and forth, carrying these animals, slaughtering these animals, pouring the blood. Time and time again. It's exhausting work. Yet the work of a Levitical priest is never done because the sins of the people were never fully covered. In fact, it is this necessary repetition that so poignantly highlights the sinfulness of the people and the inefficiency of the Levitical priesthood. Will it ever end? Back and forth, time and time again, day after day, year after year, animal after animal. Will it ever end? And the answer answer that the author of Hebrews gives this morning is it ends with Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.27 He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and then for those of the people. Why? Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. It is Finished for the blood of Jesus Christ is not only sufficient to cover the sins of the world, but it is effective to cover the sins of everyone who comes to him by faith. Brothers and sisters, do not miss the significance of this little phrase, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Unlike every priest who has come before him, Jesus is seated because his saving work is finished. He is the only priest who has a right to sit down because he is the only priest who has conquered death. And therefore, he is the only priest who is able to save to the uttermost all those who come to him through faith. He is seated. But there's another significant truth behind this phrase that I think the author of Hebrews, he doesn't come right out to mention here, but it's truth that would have been immediately recognized by everyone who read this letter. It would have stuck out like a sore thumb. 
We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Is there a passage of scripture that that phrase, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, takes your mind to? It's a passage that the author of Hebrews has already referenced several times in chapter 7. It is Psalm 110, verse 1. Seated at the right hand of the Father. See, here the author of Hebrews not only identifies Jesus as the high priest of Psalm 110.4, but as the king of Psalm 110.1. Jesus is that king priest, like Melchizedek. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Not only is he the true king of righteousness, but Jesus Christ is also the eternal high priest in holiness. He fulfills God's promises to David, and he fulfills and does away with the law of Moses. Jesus is everything. He is that great. And that is good news for you and for me. As the author of Hebrews says, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. That Jesus is that great. He is superior. Why would you run back to that old law? To that old priesthood that does not accomplish salvation? Why would you run back to that when Jesus is so much better? Look to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. As the author of Hebrews goes into verses 2 to 5 then, he turns his attention from the accomplishments of our high priest to the, the location of our high priest. He's already referenced it here in verse 1. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. But here in verse 2, the author of Hebrews clarifies what that means for us. Jesus is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And though a saving work is finished, his priestly work goes on. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. His main point in these verses is this, that your high priest has the ultimate access and authority. He is in heaven. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has full access. My grandfather is a big uh, Atlanta Braves fan. And every year growing up, uh, growing up, he would take my brother and I to an Atlanta Braves game. Always looked forward to it every year. It was an experience. It was a, a two and a half hour drive to Atlanta. And so we got to drive up with my grandfather. We'd stop and get some food and then we'd go to the game and we got to get back late. It was, uh, it was every year something I looked forward to. But there's one year that stood out above the rest. It was 2007. And my grandfather is good friends with a man who is a chaplain in the MLB. And this chaplain was working with several men on the 2007 Colorado Rockies. If you follow baseball, you may uh, recognize that team. The 2007 Colorado Rockies is a team that ended up, uh, they, they went above and beyond their expectations, ended up going to the World Series, uh, losing, getting swept by the Red Sox, but they got there. But that year, that man called up my grandfather and said, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to take you and your grandsons to, to a game. So the Rockies came to Atlanta, and they were playing the Braves. And we got there early. We met him there at the stadium. 
And he took us to our seats, but we didn't stop there at our seats. You see, this man took us all the way down into the very dugout. I got a chance to meet the Colorado Rockies, to shake their hands, and and they gave me a baseball. In fact, it's in my office, a baseball signed by all the Rockies, the 2007 Rockies. It was an awesome experience as a young man. You see, this man didn't have to call someone else. There wasn't two or three stops before we could get to the dugout. He took us directly in. He had access. Access is power. And the point that the author of Hebrews Hebrews is saying here is that our high priest, he's not just a phone call away from the throne of God. It's not that he has connections that, that we don't. He is in the very presence of God. He is at his right hand. Even as we sang this morning, and and can it be, that last verse, bold I approach, where? Bold I approach the gates of heaven? Bold I approach the eternal throne. If you ever stop to think about what a privilege that is, to approach the eternal throne. You have access to the eternal throne of God through your high priest, Jesus Christ, who is seated at his right hand, who is pleading for you. He's seated there. He has access. Notice his work here in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. You see, Jesus, his saving work is finished, but his work as high priest is ongoing. He is an active high priest, so he is sitting at the, hand of the, at the right hand of the Father. And what is this gift, this sacrifice that he offers? The, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will go on in verses 4 to 5 to stress this more. But the point here is that Jesus does not come into the sanctuary empty-handed. But he comes with an offering. His offering has already been mentioned in verse 27 of chapter 7. Who does not need nay daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. Why? For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It's a sacrifice that will be more fully unpacked in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 28, when we get there in a few weeks. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that your high priest has an effective sacrifice. In fact, it is his very presence as the right hand of the Father that pleads his blood. The point that he is sitting there is the proof that he's been accepted. It's the proof that his blood is effective. It's the proof that your hope is sure. He has more access than any of the little than the Levitical priests could have dreamed of. He has a more effective sacrifice than has ever been made. In fact, that's the point that the author of Hebrews goes on to make here in verses four to five. 
If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offered the gifts according to the law. We noted this last week. Jesus did not come to be a Levitical priest. He's not qualified to be a Levitical priest. He does not come from that line. He's qualified to be a better priest. He could not serve in the temple. That's kind of an interesting thought that one of the commentators noted. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he never waltzed into the temple and walked right back into the Holy of Holies. Even though that's his father. Even though he, of anyone, deserves to be in there. He was not qualified to walk back there. Yet notice the language of Hebrews 8, 2. Verse we've already looked at. The true tabernacle which the Lord has erected, not man. That language right there captures our attention. This Jesus is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. What does the author of Hebrews mean by true tabernacle? Well, this is a tabernacle which the Lord himself erected and not man. Here the author of Hebrews is pointing out the superiority of Jesus' of Jesus's location and Jesus' access over the location and the access of the Levitical priests. He does not serve in the temple. He is not qualified to be a Levitical priest. He is not born in that line. He's a better priest. He does not serve on earth because he serves in a better sanctuary. Luke verse 5 says, who serve the, the copy and the shadow. These earthly priests serve in a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all, these, all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. On the mountain there, the author of Hebrews is quoting Exodus 25.40. Showing that God gave specific instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle. Specific instructions because the tabernacle is modeled after a real place. It is not just an arbitrary thing that, that God just came up with off the top of his head. It represents a real place, a real place where Jesus is. If you ever watch the show Antique Roadshow or even uh, Pawn Stars there on History Channel, you'll see people come in with all these different things. And, and they'll bring it and they'll look at it and they'll say, this is, you know... The Declaration of Independence, you know, whatever it is. And they're hoping that's the real thing, because if it is, it is worth a lot. And often they'll, 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 these experts will look at it and they'll, they'll look it over. And if it's a copy, a lot of times it's basically worthless. Maybe it, it served a purpose, but it's the real thing that has real authority and power. It is the real thing that is worth something. And brothers and sisters, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that, that yes, that Levitical priesthood, it served a purpose. That temple and that tabernacle, it served a purpose. But its purpose was to point to something better. That was just a shadow. It's just a hint. There is something better. And your better high priest serves in that real sanctuary. He has real access. His blood has real power, and therefore you have real hope. 
the location of our high priest. He is in the presence of the Father. Finally, notice the promises of our high priest. See, as you come to Hebrews 8, 6, the author of Hebrews essentially sums up the first five verses here. And in doing so, he sets up the rest of the book. This is kind of a transition point in the book. Uh, going forward, we're going to focus on uh, a new covenant, a better sacrifice. These are all things that are coming up. He's introducing us here to it. We understand the uniqueness and the power of Jesus' priesthood and sacrifice. We've seen that in chapter 6 and 7. But the question that the author of Hebrews is going to start focusing on now is what does it all mean? Yes, Jesus is better, but so what? What does it mean? What does it accomplish? What hope is there in that? Why is this good news for us? He introduces us to this idea here. But now, he, this Jesus, this better high priest, who is in the presence of God, the Father, who is seated at his right hand, he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. He has a more excellent ministry. What does this all mean? It means that Jesus is a superior priest, has a superior ministry in every way to the earthly priests. He is not hindered by sin. He is not limited by death. He is not separated from the presence of the Father. His ministry is superior because he is superior. Jesus' ministry is not just a band-aid. It's not just a, a stopgap. Jesus' ministry is a solution. It is powerful. It is hope. It is final. It is a more excellent ministry. And as much as he's also a mediator of a better covenant. The more excellent ministry of Jesus Christ comes with a more excellent covenant. This covenant is better because this covenant is effective. Unlike the law that, that opens our eyes to the depth of our sin, to our inability to save ourselves, it opens our eyes and yet it is unable to save. It shows us the problem, but it offers no solution. This covenant is a solution. This covenant is effective. It is a covenant that brings salvation and salvation to the uttermost. It's a covenant founded on better promises. Very precious and great promises, as 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4 says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What do these promises accomplish? So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What do these promises add up to? They add up to salvation. Salvation to the uttermost. And it's these better 
This better covenant and these better promises that we will focus on in the coming weeks as the author of Hebrews turns his attention from who Jesus is to what Jesus has done. So in these first six verses, the author of Hebrews captures or accomplishes two things. First, he sums up everything that he has said to this point. This is the main point of the things that we are saying. Jesus is this high priest. It is Jesus. Secondly, it sets the stage going forward to what we're going to be focusing on. This more excellent ministry. This better covenant and these better promises. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is better. And our hope in him is better. Rejoice this morning in the finished work of your great Savior. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. His saving work is finished. Your sins are forgiven. There is no limit to his access and there is no end to his ministry. And therefore your hope is sure and eternal. This is the climax of the book of the Hebrews to this point. This is why all of this matters. This is not just general truth, but it is truth that is very real and practical and applicable to you and to me. Because this is true, true, we have hope. Because Jesus is called by the Father. Because he has conquered death. Because he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We have a better hope based on better promises. And so this morning, as we come to the summation of the first seven chapters, as we look forward to the next several chapters, number one, if you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you're here this morning and you don't know this high priest, maybe you don't have this hope, I am adding my voice to the author of Hebrews to plead with you to see Jesus. See his sacrifice on your behalf. See his blood that was shed for your sins. And turn to him in faith this morning. You cannot save yourself. You will never be good enough. The Bible tells us that even our good works, even the, even the things that we do as good, even those are tainted with sin. Even those are as filthy rags before a holy God. And yet that holy God sent his son to pay your penalty, to die for your sins, the death that you deserve. And all all that you need to do in order to be saved is believe in him. I'll call you this morning to faith. Even as in just a second, we're going to uh, sing a song as we transition towards the Lord's table. Even as we're singing, if, you, if the Lord is working on you, come to the front. Come and seek me out or, or seek me out after the service and I would love nothing more than to take you aside to open this book, the word of God, and just to answer the questions that you may have, to point you to Christ, I'd encourage you to come.